0: All right. Well, welcome to the, the final of this most recent study of the hymns of the faith. Um, it's, always a, it's always an edifying study, and the, uh, the hymn that we're, we're studying today is, is one of my personal favorites. And there's always, there's always a little bit of danger in teaching your personal favorite or talking about your personal favorite, because you may, might take things as assumed and just and just think well everyone else loves it as much as i do and and miss all these gaps and and so if <clears throat> i i love this so much though that i would hope that you don't judge the hymn strictly based on what you hear today so if you need another shot at it i would encourage you to read uh an article on desiring god by john bloom that uh that was short and succinct way more succinct than this uh lesson will be so check that out if you need a second chance but let's let's open uh, our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have, this day—not just this time, but this day that we have to worship you, to come into your courts with thanksgiving and praise. And Lord, we thank you that it is that it is not just thanksgiving that we uh, that we can can feel as believers, but um, we can we can feel your comfort. As we undergo trials and sorrows and suffering of various kinds, thank you for your word that comforts us. Thank you for the hymns that uh, saints of all times have written uh, to focus our hearts on this comfort. And I pray that you would bless our time together, that we would magnify you in our hearts, that we would. Know that you are God, and that we would respond with with a deep-seated joy and then, as we turn from this lesson and go to worship you, I pray that that uh that we would have greater uh, greater opportunities and reasons to to give you thanks and praise as we look at your word uh, in this hymn um, and we ask these things in Jesus' name amen. As I said, we're talking about a a hymn, Be Still My Soul. This hymn is a hymn for the deepest sorrows that we experience as believers. It is a hymn for grief that can find no words. And yet it's still a hymn for deep consolation. Uh, And even, even a hymn of victory. And you hear that in tones of the music as well. It's, it's for many types of grief. Uh, the grief may be the loss of a loved one. The grief could be uh, the, the, the pain of, of not having children when you long for children. The pain may be uh, children who have gone astray. And, and the list could go on. Uh, name name the, the deepest grief. And this is a hymn that would be well worth pondering and meditating in your sorrow, uh, it was written around 1750 by Katharina von Schlegel. Sorry to anyone who knows German. Uh, and there's a trend here. I don't think I'm to be trusted with history, uh, apparently, because none of my hymns have people that we know much about. So, if you want to read more about Katharina von Schlegel, just go to Wikipedia, because you'll know about as much as I do. Uh, <clears throat> it was translated around 1855 so about 100 years later by a Scotswoman named jo- Jane Borthwick a bit known as uh, a bit more known as excuse me a bit more is known about uh Miss Borthwick but uh there again not much more than what you can go read on wikipedia so go go do that uh one thing that is interesting is that uh that this this uh Pastor David noted, actually it might have been in a session meeting, how few of the hymns we've been studying have Presbyterian roots. Well, while this doesn't have Presbyterian roots, it was written by a Lutheran woman, Catherine von Schlegel uh, was likely a Lutheran who lived in something called a a stift. It was like the the convents kind of kept their endowments and continued to serve uh, single and widowed women. Uh, And so she was she was Lutheran, uh, but some of the earliest examples of this hymn with the tune we sing actually come from Presbyterian hymnals. So that's that's exciting, because uh, the tune and the words uh, fit maybe better than any other hymn we have in our hymnal. And if you have a different opinion, I'm sorry. It was composed by Jean Sebelius. Uh, yeah, so his hair is magnificent. Unfortunately, I don't think I have enough body to really emulate him. Uh, I think Rebecca is probably the only one that has seen my hair look quite like that, and Pastor Cliff. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> he he's a, a Finnish composer, which has connections with uh, with my wife as well. Um, you could even say that he's the Finnish composer. He was well known for his patriotic works, of which this melody was one. Uh, it was part of a, a larger, uh, a larger composition, uh, a, 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 a tableau of smaller pieces that that was meant to be pro Finland. Finland was under Russian rule; uh, they were considered a, a grand duchy, and there was increasing desire from Russia to to uh, Diminish their sovereignty, and Jean Sibelius wrote this piece to to give some national fervor, some some historical pride in uh, in Finland, um, and it, it was written in 1899. Later, he actually took he himself took this melody out from the larger work and arranged it to be sung on its own, and it became the tune that we know of as Finlandia. There's actually been a lot of push, uh, several movements for it to become Finland's national anthem, which they're really missing out if they don't go for that tune. But I actually prefer for it to stay as Be Still My Soul. So the lyrics, diving into the lyrics. Uh, Miss von Schlegel was clearly a student of the Psalms. She writes the hymn with the same audience in mind as many of the psalms, uh, her own soul. David repeatedly writes psalms to his own soul. He, he, as we've heard many say before, he preaches to himself. And this this hymn is no different. The constant refrain is a self-exhortation, be still my soul, and then it propounds Various reasons for why we should be still in our souls. Left to ourselves, we're, we're pretty miserable comforters. Job's friends would, would be superior even to our own comfort of ourselves. What are some of the ways we, we self-comfort? Well, maybe we choose not to think about it. We, we encounter overwhelming grief and we say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that. That's a miserable comforter. Imagine a friend saying, ah, don't worry about it, just stop. That's, that's no comfort. We attempt to rationalize it. After all, if, if all we are is, is a, a, a composition of cells, then what even is grief? We're, we're just moving through an unfeeling world, unfeeling universe. Maybe we drown ourselves in some sort of distraction, entertainment, alcohol, drugs, uh, or wallow in self-pity. None of these actually address the issue. None of these actually give us any hope or comfort in the face of grief. The believer is the only one that can feel true sorrow. Because God created the world good. And sin came, and man fell, and with him brought misery, brought death. And so as we look at the contrast, sorrow comes from the contrast between how God created the world and how we experience it after the fall. And so consequently, it is right for us to face sorrow. It is right for us to stare uh, grief in the face not to, to self-medicate and hide from, from wrestling with our pain. And this hymn tenderly lifts our heads by the chin. It it makes us look at the sorrow and then continues to point our heads to where we can find the lasting comfort that we need. We could almost say that this hymn is an exposition of the, the uh, line in Psalm 46, Be Still, and know that I am God. And this hymn seeks to flesh out what does it mean that God is God. Uh, the framework of the the hymn. I am no expert on poetry, so uh, if there are corrections, I will. I will. I would love to hear uh, the corrections. But by my analysis, uh, this this hymn follows a, a pretty. Uh, consistent framework of an ABABCC uh, rhyme pattern. And so it consists of six lines. The first four lines compose uh, what I believe is called a quatrain, uh, a, a consecutive grouping of lines that all have the uh, a, a same, same rhyme pattern, followed by a, a couplet or two lines that have a consecutive rhyming pattern. Why is this important? Well. I think this is the, the framework to understand much of the hymn. And I don't want to shoehorn this in, so there are there are imperfections, but for the most part, this first part here, uh, this forms the the, the main exhortation of each verse, the first four lines. And then the final couplet is is like a a summarizing appeal to the soul. And notice that each Both sections begin with, and this is true for every single verse, both sections begin with, be still my soul. And then it gives four lines of why. And then it concludes, be still my soul, with this related and final appeal. So our first verse, be still my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide in every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. The first line represents what is the the underpinning truth for this whole psalm, uh, this, excuse me, this whole hymn. The Lord is on thy side. Uh, this echoes... Uh, Almost directly, Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. Just a few lines later in the same psalm, it says, The Lord is on my side as my helper. And this is not a, a new concept. Psalm 118 is not, does not stand alone as in this concept. And we can think of it as, as what I'm sure you've heard the term, uh, the the with you principle. So God is the God who is with us. He's near to us. And this is the undergirding truth that that Catherine wants for us to focus on. That God is near. If there's one thing that we come away from in this hymn, it is that God is near. And so it opens with that thesis. But this is such a familiar theme in the Bible. The Lord is on my side. It is so so abundant in Scripture that it's easy for us to to take it for granted. It's easy for us to maybe even have thoughts of, well, duh. But we should see a contrast. If there's nothing astounding about this truth, then there's nothing uh, comforting about this truth. Who is the Lord? Well, Psalm 24 meditates a bit on this question. And it says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell therein. Later, <clears throat> uh, later we read, um, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. So this Lord who is on our side, A, is the creator and owner of all that is and b he's the lord of armies he's the lord of hosts he <clears throat> he commands legions of angels and so this is this should this should astound us that we can read in in psalm 118 the lord is on my side the lord is on my side as a helper uh, a few more examples of of where we see this, God says to Jacob in Genesis 28, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. In Joshua nine, uh, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And again to Israel in Isaiah uh, 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. This is a magnificent uh, grounding for our comfort. And so we go on. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. So we're warned throughout Scripture that trials will come. That's not a question. Uh, This line echoes... um, Psalm 37, verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So there's no question that trials will come. Uh, but this patience that we're exhorted to have is no mere stoic bearing. This is not a c'est la vie, such as life. This is not a just a, just grin and bear it, pull, up, pull yourself up by your bootstrap, s- stiff upper lip. We've got all these phrases to describe this sort of this sort of man's man way of, of dealing with pain. And yet that's not the type of patience that we are encouraged to have in Psalm 37. The type of patience is an expectant patience. And we see that in this hymn, leave to thy God to order and provide. Why, why are we patient? Well, because we can leave it to the Lord our God. There's a, a consultant, excuse me, trying to find my cursor, there we go. There's a consultant that works with my company. And if we come to him with a, a request or a question, he's an expert in a given field, and we ask him a question about that or ask him about a task. If he can't answer right then or deliver on the request, he'll, he'll, he's got this phrase that I, I really enjoy. He says, Leave it with me. He's got an Irish accent. So he says, Just leave it with me. I'll get back to you in at, at X, and, X and Y and you know like the moment he says that he's proven his reliability such that he says leave it with me and you feel like a weight off like okay good i'm just going to wait for his email and i don't have to think about it until he responds there's a grief that can be so that can be so deep we're always dependent on the lord no matter what but there's there's a grief that can be so deep that we really We really come to learn how dependent we are. We, we learn that it's difficult to get out of bed. We learn that it's, it's difficult to, to even know how to proceed. Maybe you have well intentioned friends and, and people saying, what, how are you doing? What's next? And you barely know how to give an answer. Well, I don't mean this to sound in the least bit trite, but it is as though the Lord tells us leave it with me and we wait patiently on him until he acts which we read in Psalm 37 verse 5 commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will act this patience is not this patience is not just biding our time It's expectantly waiting for the Lord to act. In Psalm 40, David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That's what we wait patiently for. Furthermore, in every change, he faithful will remain. I am so thankful for God's immutability. I recognize we can't rip one of God's attributes away from all the rest, but it is precisely in the context of all of his attributes that his immutability, his unchanging nature, is such a comfort to us. Because our circumstances change all the time. you you no matter who you ask on the political side of the aisle, the last five years, ten years have have seen the political landscape change dramatically. Most historians, depending on what category you're focused on, would say that the 20th century saw some of the most significant changes uh, that history has seen. Circumstances change constantly and rapidly. Furthermore, I change. You change. One day we feel exuberant and joyful, and the next day, for no apparent reason, we feel low and discouraged. One day we feel hot with passion for the Lord, and the next we feel flat and cold. But God doesn't change one bit. God didn't change in the slightest all throughout the 20th century. He didn't have to react to World War I and World War II. He didn't react to the nuclear crisis of the Cold War. He is. He is unchanging. And He will faithful, He faithful will remain. He will neither leave you nor forsake you. And we can apply this to any number of areas of our life. Are we growing old? Is your body seemingly falling apart at every step? He faithful will remain. Do you survey your current circumstances and wonder, whether for good or ill, I don't know if you've had this experience, you just wonder, how did I get here? What what happened? Well, the Lord is faithful. He faithful will remain. The verse concludes, Be still, my soul. Again, this is a summary, if you will, of the previous four lines. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Thy best, thy heavenly friend. Can you, can you imagine a more beautiful way of describing the fundamental truth that the Lord is with us than to say that he's our best Friend, he's not only our champion. He, he he calls himself our friend. It would be audacious to say this, knowing what we know about the Lord, if it weren't he himself that said it. John fifteen thirteen through uh, fifteen says, "Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends." You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And what does this friend do? Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Now, we could focus on the through thorny ways. And it is true that God God ordains trials in our life. He allows trials in our life so that we would be perfected, so that we would grow in our sanctification. But notice the crucial bit here. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. God doesn't say, go through this trial. I'll see you on the other side. He's with us all the way. It's it's reminiscent of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us through the thorny ways. Yes, they have the purpose. And God is with us to see it through. How can we know this? How can we know that it leads to a joyful end? It's difficult to see that it leads to a joyful end when we're in the midst of it. But Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 2 continues this thought. uh, And it, it really continues to expound on the last line of the previous verse. Be still, my soul. Thy God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know. The voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Thy God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Have you seen God work in the past? Have you seen God work powerfully in your life? Well, those are things that you should polish in your hearts. And Psalm 103 commands us to do just that. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here again, preaching to yourself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The following chapters meditate on God's goodness to Israel and his works uh, in creation. All throughout scripture, the account of the Exodus comes up over and over again. Why? Why? Well it's because it's a it's one of many moments that Israel can go back to and see so clearly God's power, his nearness, and his uh and his love for them, and so too with us, we should meditate on God's faithfulness throughout our life because God is unchanging, therefore if we've seen him act before, we have a guarantee that he will We can trust him with our future. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. This is reminiscent of two passages. Uh, One is from the uh, psalm we already referenced, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is cataclysmic language meant to say, if the greater is true, then every other trial below that must also be true. This is, this is essentially end-of-the-world language. The mountains uh, moving into the heart of the sea. This is uh, flood language. And if we, can be, we, if we can be without fear in that context, then, then certainly we can be without fear in everything short of that. Uh, another passage that this reminds us of is, again, from Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These two passages drive home the the same thing. There is no amount of suffering, no grief, no pain, no experience that we can ever undergo that's going to separate us from God's love. Paul Paul is just piling on the examples. And then as a catch-all, because he knows he's finite and can't think of everything. He says, nor anything else in all creation. <laughs> That's, he's really wanting, to get, uh, wanting us to get this point. She goes on, all now mysterious shall be bright at last. Right now, we understand to a degree that our suffering has purpose. But I think if we're honest, we struggle with that. We, we want answers. We want to know, why did this thing happen? Why was, why was this person taken? Why did I undergo that trial? But we don't always get to know those answers. And uh, personal hobby horse, there's a danger in constantly trying to look back and, and, and figure out all the nitty gritty pieces. Sometimes you know precisely why. God gave you suffering. Sometimes you don't fully. But in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, we read, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I don't believe that this is necessarily saying that we'll understand every single last piece of, of what did what he did. We are, after all, finite, and God is infinite in his, uh, in his purposes. But we will know this, that when we look back, standing from the perspective of glory, all that has happened that led us to that moment of perfection, that reality of perfection, will be made bright, because we can say, Lord, your purposes were good. Truly, you did work all things together for my good. I don't. I no longer have to just trust that that is true. I experience in that moment that it is true. The final couplet is one of the most beautiful lines in Hymnody. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the voice of Him who ruled. Excuse me. The voice who ruled them while He dwelt below. It succinctly draws our minds to, to two significant truths, that, that Jesus is sovereign and he is near. While he dwelt below, while he was the word become flesh who made his dwelling with us. We might forget that God is still sovereign even after he ascended. We might forget, certainly that the disciples worried maybe that when Jesus left them, everything would, everything would go wrong. The waves and winds do not. Creation knows their knows its Lord. Uh, we are we're fickle though. But this is why we need these these types of reminders. The waves and winds still know His voice, who ruled them while He dwelt below. Verse three: Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shall thou, thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrows and thy fears. Be still, my soul. Thy Jesus can repay. From his own fullness, all he takes away. How we need the truths of the previous two verses as we face verse 3. Verse 3 comes right to some of the most difficult sorrow that we can face, the loss of dearest friends. And how well it phrases it, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Even Christians can feel the weight of of, of grief. We're not called to only ever be happy about all circumstances. We can, we can feel the weight of sorrow. And what a wise way that, this, that, that uh, she continues to go on to comfort. There's, I, I think we could learn a good bit about counseling ourselves and others by thinking through this hymn. Because it focuses not on ourselves in the next line. So all is darkened in the veil of tears. It can be difficult in those moments uh, to even imagine all things being bright. It may even be painful for someone to suggest that things could be bright. But she's not focusing us merely on the present circumstances and how they could change. The focus is turned entirely to the Lord so that we would better know his love his heart it's not necessarily that we're looking to come out of the grief in this moment we're looking to know that god is greater than our grief there's an experience that i think we've all had as we've as we've known friends where you you get to know someone at first maybe it's a spouse maybe it's a maybe it's a member of church at church um Whatever the case may be, you start a relationship, and and it's it's friendly, it's good. You 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 know that there's a, a shared love and appreciation, but then suffering hits. Maybe you're laid up, or you, you're going through something incredibly hard—financial difficulties, sickness—and then that friend that everything was nice with before. Well suddenly they're visiting you, or they're they're applying cool compresses to a feverish head they're they're sitting with you in your grief they're they're with you deeply well that relationship suddenly goes from nice and and good to deep and weighty and there's this there's this strange sense that while none of us in our right minds would want to go through the suffering again, maybe we would would never want to trade that suffering for the, the depth of that new relationship. Well, so it is with the Lord. We go through incredible trials, but as Jesus comes to soothe our sorrows and our fears, we better understand the depths of his love. We better understand his heart towards us. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus will comfort us. Um, For for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this entire passage, but I would encourage you to read John 14 as Jesus comforts his disciples in the face of his imminent departure. And he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. These words must have been an immense comfort to his disciples. Well, we have that and more. Because Jesus is raised. He's vindicated for all that he all that he said to his disciples was proven to be true in the resurrection. And we live on that. On this side of the resurrection. Again, this verse ends in a couplet: Be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. This is a fantastic example of why doctrine is so important. We we don't need to be uncharitable, but this stuff is worth getting fussy about. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. If Jesus is not fully God, then we have no comfort. If I can repay certain things, if I, if if we if you help me with something, uh, or you give me something, I can repay, but it's not from my own fullness. When I repay, I'm having to consume from something else in order to then give that to you. But Jesus, all fullness dwells in him. He is, as God, he is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, he he, He is the one who is creator of all things. And therefore, he can... He can repay anything um, my my dad, his first wife, died in a car accident when they had been married seven years and and it's not until recently, especially after getting married that i've i've begun to imagine how hard <laughs> that trial would be, and yet the other thing about growing up is that weird recognition that. Were it not for that, I wouldn't exist, and in no way does does my dad's new home replace the home that he had for seven years? It doesn't expunge that and pretend as though that doesn't matter anymore. No, but surely it is it is a a, a feeling of a loss. And and it's it's Jesus repaying what he took away from my dad, and now he he blessed him with uh, a, a family, a wife who loves him. They've been married thirty eight years. There is in in a way that's maybe difficult to understand. Jesus can repay, and this applies to many circumstances. The loss of a loved one. Jesus gives himself. Um, do you? Do you long for children? God can give you spiritual children, so to speak, within the church as you pour into uh, young people here. Do you long for your child to know the Lord? And there's separation and grief. Jesus, from his own fullness, can give new life, even as he gave it to you. Loneliness. God can surround you with. Christian fellowship. We're not necessarily promised the specifics in a physical dimension, but we certainly are promised the spiritual dimension. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's the theme that verse 4 will pick up with. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on, when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Many of the greatest hymns end in some way by focusing on eternity. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us because uh, we're we're repeatedly in Scripture turned to eternity as our comfort. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verse 18, after speaking of the second coming of Christ, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Eternity should be a focus of our encouragement to ourselves and others. Can we imagine Even with our relative ease and comfort that we enjoy, can we imagine a time when all sorrow is forgotten? Or when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone? It's so hard to wrap our minds around that. Um, or, Or when all are safe, when we all meet at last. Just think, we'll meet at last in heaven and we'll be safe, A, from physical harm, but two, from sin. We'll be safe from sin and we'll enjoy fellowship like we've never experienced. This all references, and we'll close with this uh, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a comfort. Yes, God is using these, these things to sanctify us. But there will be a day when all things are made new. And there is no more crying. There is no more sorrow. Let's, uh, let's sing this beautiful hymn. Uh, you'll find it on page 689. Be still, my soul. And I think Rebecca is going to come and
1: give us some notes. Be still. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your nearness to us.
0: We thank you for the comfort that you give us in your word. Comfort for salvation, but comfort for bringing us all the way to glory. Lord, would you lead us as we encounter prosperity and as we encounter thorny ways and sorrow? Would we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and see how he underwent trial, and how he uh, cried out to you. And most of all, that we would look to Jesus to see how he bore the wrath that we deserved so that we might be comforted. And Lord, we pray that this would be continuing to ring in our ears as we worship you, and that we would give you the due thanks and praise for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.